Hey, my name is Ev Bennett, and welcome back to the Asode Blocks podcast channel. And uh, this channel is about foundational transformational Torah means Torah that actually transforms your fundamental perceptions about reality, which is what the Torah was always for. Uh, uh, a body of information that was actually a map of how things work in existence, both the most physical and tangible aspects of our being going all the way up or all the way in to the most intangible, personal, inner space, meditative consciousness, emotional, all the interrelations between those different aspects of our being, a map of all of that and how we create bridges and connections with each other. And so that's really what this whole channel is for, sort of articulating the most profound and complex ideas that often are difficult to say out loud and trying to find language that we can use to really understand and access them at ever-increasing levels of depth. So we're in the middle of our Nefshachim series right now. This is Perictes chapter 9 in the first Sha'ar, Sha'ar Aleph, uh, the first gate. And what we're doing here is sort of like finishing off the discussion that we've been having for the last few episodes about this concept of the Kruvim, which are the uh, figures, these people like to call them in English angels, not really the right word, but the Kruvim are basically these two golden figures that stand on top of this container, it's receptacle called the Aron in the inside of the Vesa Mikdash, uh, the temple, or also known as, also and also the Mishkan in the original version, the mobile temple that B'nai Israel had access to uh, in the desert journey from Egypt to Israel uh, 3,000 years ago. And so on top of that Aron, there was, which Aron literally means like a closet or container. So on top of that were these two golden statues, and they would face each other. One represents Hashem, and one represents us. And it basically is a representation of our relationship with Hashem. And so the discussion has really been a lot about how there's different opinions about when these statues, how they were sort of positioned. So first of all, the statues are, are originally supposed to be facing each other, but there was some kind of... Uh, phenomenon in which they would actually change position depending on the relationship uh, dynamic and status almost between B'nai Israel and Hashem. And so the discussion here has been until now, um, what what is the ideal position or how are they supposed to be set up? And so there's there were sort of like two different um, contexts that we were discussing. One was in the context in the actual desert, um, so then the statues would face each other pretty much all the time, um, or at least they would face each other directly for whenever things were going the way they were supposed to be going. And then if there was a problem, the statues would face away from each other, indicating sort of like a distance and like a fight situation between the two lovers that are represented by the statues, which is us and Hashem. And then there were later kruvim that were designed by Shlomo Amelech when he built the actual temple, the base of Mikdash, and those kruvim, so they would actually, uh, they, it sounds like they were, according to one opinion at least, they were positioned not directly facing each other, facing each other, but slightly to the side, also facing like parallel to each other a little bit. Uh, and the question was, why is that? And so there are all these discussions about how... Uh, the Kruvim basically, when they were slightly um, off of each other, because in the base of Mikdash set, in the uh, in the base of Mikdash setting, after Shlomo Melch built the uh, built this new Aron and with these new Kruvim, so the the way of life for Bnei Israel was a little bit different. And we're going to learn a little more about exactly how it was different in a minute. That's really the beginning of Parakhtes, um chapter nine over here, and so that'll give us an, some insight into the distinction between how sort of life was working before versus, versus after the desert journey. Now, all this is super important because 
uh, just to go back to our consciousness hub and network analogy. So that's really what this is about. The, when the crew of them are facing each other, so that indicates that now uh, every consciousness node hub, meaning each one of us, is living in harmony with the consciousness uh, source, you know, like the, the, super, the super hub, uh, the root consciousness. And so you can think of it as if you're like an antenna or a conductor for consciousness, so then, so then self-awareness and consciousness pretty much flows through you and then, is an, and is then expressed out into the world. So you can think of it as your sense of self and your, your, your self-awareness is something which you have access to and then it fluctuates, right? You can have times that you're more self-aware and less self-aware, more conscious, more awake, more intentional in your in your being. All these things are synonymous because the more self-aware you are, then the more intentional you are in terms of your decisions. And so you have times that you're more self-aware and less self-aware. And then you, when you're more intentional, so think about the implications of that word. It means you're actually intentionally making things happen uh, in your immediate surroundings. And depending on your level of power and influence in the world based on your relationships, then your intentional decisions have potentially very wide-reaching impacts because if you have a very wide range of control, and everybody has some level of control in their immediate environment, so whether you're a person who works in a job uh, and you're a very high-level employee, so maybe you'll be able to have much more of a ripple effect around you, or even if you're a low-level employee, you have small amounts of impact on people in your immediate environment also, and these things ripple from person to person. And so if you're acting more intentionally uh, in a particular context, so then you cause the people around you to sort of sense that and they experience your intentionality and your consciousness presence, presence of mind, and they'll respond in kind in many different ways. And so you actually have this imp influence on the consciousness network that is in your immediate surroundings uh, in ways that very often go far beyond what you can imagine just because of the ripple effect of consciousness. So that's really... Um, that's what we kind of are. So you can think of it as another analogy. There's a, a store called Walmart that uh, they have, you know, hundreds of different stores, and it's a gigantic business enterprise, like more, like you know, hundreds of thousands of employees. And every store in Walmart, it uh, it's it's its own store, but it's part of a much larger, you know, store essentially. And they just have branches everywhere. And each of these branches, so the every every branch of a store in that kind of business model struggles with. Uh, a certain basic problem. One is that it's part of a larger store, which is the superstore, the mothership store, uh, which is analogous to our to our central consciousness that we call Hashem. Um, so that you know, you're sort of beholden to that store. It means that you have to follow their directives. You have to figure out how to make sure you're in alignment with them to be an expression of their vision in your immediate store context. You want to be true to whatever Walmart is about. Because if you aren't, then you're going to be, you're going to end up diluting the brand and violating the purpose of the store in different ways, and that really can undermine, undercut the business uh, in certain ways. Um, on the other hand, you have to also sort of be true to your own space because every store is in a different location, different market, different types of clientele, and different types of sales patterns, and you have to sort of appeal to your buyers, your local customers, in ways that are particular to them. Otherwise, you're going to sort of not really be um, in harmony with the immediate surroundings that is your selling environment. And so you have this constant back and forth sort of struggle with, well, I'm an independent operator because I'm my own store and I have my own customer base, but I'm also uh, an, in an interdependent operator because I'm part of a much larger context that's, uh, that's the mother store and the larger brand that we call Walmart. And so that's, that's like a good analogy for what I think we're gonna read now, which is sort of the distinction between 
um, the Kruvim in the time of the Mishkan versus the Kruvim in the time of the base of Mikdash. And so with that, we'll sort of have a, a, an idea of how to, how to terminologically categorize what the Nefshachayim is talking about here. So this is really going to be, to a certain degree, wrapping up the whole Kruvim discussion in this chapter. So let's read together. So we're in Perak Tes, chapter 9. Uh, in the standard edition, it's on page 31, Lamed Aleph. And it starts, dor hamidbar, So the generation of people who are in the desert, in other words, the B'nai Israel who were traveling from Egypt um, after the Exodus story going to Israel, so they were essentially having a massive, massive, massive consciousness event because Hashem was pretty much uh, overtly manipulating nature and reality around them, sort of revealing again and again and again how all of nature is actually a gigantic system of intentionality that Hashem is sort of intentionally expressing uh, as opposed to being sort of like a random haphazard uh, interaction of different different random events. So these people were what's called Zachulios me Ochle Shulchan Gavoa. They were they they were able to to literally the, the words mean they were they were able to sort of eat from the high table. What that means is they were like in very, very intense proximity to the consciousness source. Um, because that's Shulchan Gavoa means like the high table. So that means sort of, sort of like you're you're really close to the to the if you use the Walmart analogy, you're very closely uh, positioned to the actual, you know, mother store. Um, they actually eat bread that fell from the sky because there was this this um, physical sustenance material that we call man. Uh, in English, it's called manna. If you like that word, um, so man is something which the Torah describes as like this. This literally was food that was very very unique because it was like much more balanced food than the food we ch- we tend to eat. So the way our bodies work now is because of certain distortions in our body structure, which we'll talk about a little bit later when we get to some more details. Uh, of how we're designed currently, so our bodies eat, our bodies consume the food that we put inside of them, um, and then they they excrete sort of like the the leftovers, the things that the body is unable to use. So that's something which is uh, historically, if you think I mean, there's a lot of research that you could do about this, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. In other words, if you could find a way to put food into your body that was purely uh, and like very harmoniously adapted. To be used as raw material for your body's processing, um, for your, its for its uh, its its um, replenishment process, then you wouldn't have to ever excrete anything. And so the man was this kind of food that was actually designed to be purely in harmony with the body consciousness uh, dynamic. And so you would eat this thing called the man, and then there would be very there would be no ex, no excreting because it was purely being absorbed into the body and being uh, allowing the body to be much more intensely sort of recycled and replenished so that's food that came literally from the sky every day it rained down from the sky and so that's what's called shulchan gavoa literally the high table because it's like you're eating off of the table of hashem what that means there is like you know this is you're literally experiencing the consciousness source self manifest directly in a way that is directly beneficial for you and you sort of you really see how like okay that's done with intentionality and sort of you can extrapolate from that that all of nature and all of food and eating and everything sort of comes from the same place and so it gives you a very deep perception of the consciousness that is now manifest in the physical experience that you are actually a part of and their clothes were they, their clothes did not uh, decline also they had no need to try to work on self-sustaining in other words there was means to basically make sure that you are 
sustaining yourself, whether it's eating or, or clothing or shelter, all those different elements, they did not have to spend any time focusing on those things because they were all, they were eating from Shulchan Gavoah, Hashem was taking care of all of those things overtly. Um, and so since, since that's true, so that means that, like, according to everyone, even Rabbi Ishmael, who in the previous uh, chapter said that, yeah, that that um, it's considered to be uh, acting inside of the Ratzon of Hashem. In other words, acting as a true conductor of Hashem's consciousness in the world, it's considered to be doing that, even if you have to take care of things for yourself sometimes. In other words, like when you need to do maintenance for your body or, you know, clothing or shelter or food or what we call, you know, working today uh, to make money, that's really just your, just, that, that, that is an expression of your need to make sure that your body is covered so it doesn't die in the elements of, the, of you know, of nature. Uh, buying and, you know, creating shelter is essentially an extension of that, so you're protected and shielded from the elements also. And having food to your body can constantly replenish itself. These are that's essentially what all of career and work is about doing, um, at its most basic level. Then we can talk about careers in which you are actually doing activities that are in some way conducting intentionality and consciousness into the world. That's what we call your career vision and your you know your drive and your creativity. So if you have a job where you're allowed to do that, that's great. And then you're really you're able to use your parnasa, uh, you know, activity as a in harmony and actual expression of the consciousness um, transmission into the world through you. That's an incredible situation, relatively rare. Some people have jobs like that. Um, Not everybody does. So basically what we're saying is that, um, according to Rabbi Yishmael, so in the time of of the Mishkan, so since there was no need to be involved in Parnassah at all because everything was literally being taken care of by Hashem overtly, so then it's only called Ratzon Hashem Makom, it's only called being in harmony with Hashem's Ratzon, um, in situations where you are fully involved with Hashem. If you were looking towards Hashem directly, in other words, that means like the Kruvim had to be directly facing each other as a reflection of this, that you your life essentially revolved purely around being a conductor for Hashem's consciousness into the world, and your life was about learning how to do that more and more effectively, deepening your relationships, connecting more fully to everything around you, and perceiving Hashem more and more and more intensely over time. That's what would have to be going on during that time period because there was nothing else. There was no reason your, all of your Parnassa situations were fully, uh, were all covered. So there's no reason not to be doing that. And so anything less than that full level of involvement um, is called sort of turning away from Hashem. So that's why in the, in the Mishkan, during the time of the, of the desert journey, so the Kruvim were actually facing directly towards each other. So they were, and, and the people were just um, sort of dedicating their hearts and their passions and their drives just to Torah and Avodah, sort of living, deepening their knowledge of the Torah and learning how to live the Torah life in a more and more profoundly deep way. And awareness of Hashem. So they were deepening that, that aspect of, what they were, that, of their lives. Uh, and so day and night, this is all they were doing. Like that's what their life was about, the science of consciousness, essentially doing this more and more and more intensely and deeply. Like literally like that. With no, with no deviations. Even, a little, even for a little while um, to deal with Parnassah, there was none of that. 
The Torah was only actually given, like in its fullest form, to those who were eating man, because the man is what sort of allowed you to, to do this. The man essentially was the food that you needed to stay alive, and it was, like we said, it was very pure food. Um, so that's why then they positioned the Kruvim according to the quality of their, of their fulfillment of the Ratzon of, the, of Hashem. Um, and their faces were facing directly at each other, and so uh, and so that's uh, it was it was it was essentially reflecting this direct focus. to sort of show that they were directly they were they were directly focused towards Hashem. So it was like a very intense. There was no there was no need to sort of focus on each individual store and figure out what was going to happen inside of each individual store because the stores were so taken care of in in direct harmony with what it is that they needed for themselves that they were free to love back and to and to give themselves back fully towards the source. So since the source was so um, directly, you know, loving and sharing or, or, you know, dedicating towards them, so that same truth is going on in reverse towards them. Panim panim im am kedosho. So because Hashem was face to face with these people and they were face to face with him. So that's what was going on during the, the, the Mishkan. During the time of Shlomo, when most of Bnei Yisrael had to, had to actually turn a little bit to the side and solve some of their own store problems, they weren't getting all the resources just from Hashem. They had to actually go and invest effort and time to plant you know, food and grow it out of the ground and build houses and all those things. Enough to stay alive, certainly. That's, and that's according to Rabbi Ishmael. That's what Hashem's. That's what the setup is about. Hashem doesn't want the stores to be fully dependent on the mother store. Hashem wants the stores to have a certain level of autonomy to operate as individual consciousness hubs, not just to operate as almost like extensions of Hashem that are pure extensions. And Hashem wants there to actually be some separation and some otherness in the relationship between Hashem and us and the consciousness hubs. By the way, that's uh, simply because that's how all relationships, if you, if you want to have a true relationship, uh, partnership of equals, there has to constantly be this, this, uh, this dynamic of moving between connection and closeness and distance and separation. And you're going to have to, all kinds of different versions of that, times that you're further, times that you're closer, in very many different aspects of your, of your relationship. So it's a much longer discussion, but the point here is that that's what is actually ideal. It's supposed to be that way. Um, and so Ishmael says, like, like, like Rabbi Ishmael says, that for the masses, uh, most people are supposed to be living that way. That's actually a, a standard relationship structure that we're supposed to have with Hashem and also with each other. Like it says in Masechah's Avos, uh, also known as Pirkei Avos, Yafet Talmud Torah im Derech Eretz. That Torah is 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 the most like it's the most special when it is done with Derech Eretz, meaning what we call Derech Eretz, usually translated loosely as sort of like the normal way of life as we know it, biological life with food and shelter and all those things. So Torah is the most well done when you have it paired with a life that is we'll call part of the regular normal way of living. Um, and any Torah doesn't have a malacha involved in it, 
animus which means like if you if you if you're learning a lot of Torah and you're constantly trying to develop your awareness of Hashem and the science of consciousness of how you are connected to Hashem and who Hashem is and who you are. So if you don't have some kind of malacha that's going with that, malacha means intentional involvement and expression of yourself into the outside world that actually makes real change happen. So if you don't have that going on, then the Torah itself that you're learning is not going to last because the Torah is a map of reality. So if you don't have like a, a good, strong relationship with reality uh, on the outside, then the Torah is not going to give you very much insight because you don't have enough raw material of understanding of the real world to implement and understand what the Torah is really talking about. So you have to sort of have that. And all the words that are in Masechus Avos are what we call words of chasidut. And chasidut literally means like an intuitive knowledge of your of your lover. So if you have when you have a, a lover, someone on the other side in your life, a, you know, a, a very profoundly intense relationship. It, so if you are a chasid of them, it means that you in, intuitively can can tell what it is that they care about, what they want, and even if they don't say it to you, you can sort of extrapolate from all your knowledge of them and what you what you've gone through with them until now and figure out based on that what it is that they would want you to do, even if they didn't say to you explicitly what they want. So what we're saying here is that all if all the words in, in Masechus Avos are words about that are about becoming very profoundly intuitive towards Hashem, well, this is telling you what Hashem kind of really wants. Uh, he wants this kind of um, more distance and closeness relationship as opposed to just you being a pure conductor where there's almost no you, and it's like literally like just Hashem shines through you fully all the time, which is what was happening in the desert. Um, just it should be that when you're involved in your parnasa process, so your lave, in other words, you should have you should have some uh, internal focus that you're thinking about the chachma of the Torah. So this is really not so hard to do once you actually spend some time really delving into the deeper sides of the Torah, because you know this, the the concept here is that when you're doing your regular life. That you're actually thinking Torah thoughts and like learning about Torah, even as you're just you know working on a I don't know finance spreadsheet or a real estate investment or you're working in surgery as a doctor or you know you name your field whatever it is you're doing. So to actually have here who are Torah, meaning thinking about Torah, that does not mean that like if you're you know working on on, on a on a finance spreadsheet that you should just be like also thinking almost like distractedly about a piece of Gemara that you learned a while ago so, so that way you can fulfill this idea like oh I got to make sure to learn Torah. What it means is that you're trying to develop a perspective about life. I mean it can also mean that you can do that if you want to take some downtime from whatever it is you're working on and just think about you know some piece of Torah that you learned from a text that's great but the real Torah Shabbat Peh like the Torah that's alive that you're living all the time that you're actually able to do this with is Torah that you're not just reading out of a book. It's that the more Torah that you learn, because the Torah is usually when you're when you're because Torah today is unfortunately written down, so it's very linear. That's what all all written down things are very linear intrinsically, because you have to read through them word by word. So you're reading this linear Torah and then you're absorbing the ideas. But what you're supposed to do is sort of then take the ideas that you just learned and then. Um, examine them inside your head, look at them from multiple angles and try to understand what the implications are of each idea that you acquire. And then what you can do is you go to the, all the other ideas that you have and you figure out, well, the idea I just learned now, how does this new idea connect to all the other ideas? And you develop like a, an interactive system and, and perspective of Torah that is very, very uh, dynamic and, and alive. And it's something which like, the more you do that, the more it profoundly shifts the way that you think about everything. And so like, you know, when you're talking to, if, when you develop this and the more, you know, like all the ideas you've been saying in the last few few chapters, you know, thinking about, about people as, as consciousness hubs in a gigantic network of self. So that's very 
you know, catalytic perspective, because like when you're talking to another person and you start to detect their self-awareness, you know, ebbing and flowing and, and oscillating and you, and you start to detect their intentionality and their focus and that, and what those things mean and how consciousness is truly intangible. And you're literally seeing something which is invisible through the eyes of the person that you're talking to, which is what, you know, that's, that's what we're always looking for. When you look into somebody's eyes, you're looking for their aliveness and people who are more alive, we're attracted to them because we, we sense their power. And it's like, well, that's because there's more Hashem consciousness being attenuated through them into the world. So that's something which you can be aware of at all times. You can be looking for that because that's, that's not just like a, a segregated idea. Like, oh, there's something called Torah and like that's separate from my job. It's like that is the framework of your job when you're working with somebody and their conscious awareness so it is, is like spreading out of them and you're interacting with them or you're working with somebody who isn't doing that and they're more, they're more habituated or kind of half asleep in their life in different ways. You can detect those things. In fact, your life revolves around those dynamics and the more you can understand the different parts of those dynamics and the more you can really be effective and, and intentional in what it is that you're doing, which is literally in today's world in the business world is like that is the most uh, powerful set of tools you could ever have because it's like that's what people are looking for, looking for workers who are thoughtful, creative, intentional because we are in a very high consciousness state of time right now in the world. So that's how you think about Torah while you're doing your job. It's not like these two separate segregated areas like where you got to like think about Torah because, well, really, I'm doing my job. My job is like not an ideal thing. I should really be learning Torah all the time. And so it's not good that I'm doing this job, but I have to. So I'll think about Torah. Like the Torah is the framework of how you sh should really be processing and experiencing all of reality because it's the most uh, powerful framework, most true framework about existence. So it's kind of like if you go to a therapist and you tell him or her, you're like, well, the way I usually process my friendships is that like, you know, my friends don't really like me, but like we get along sometimes, we have fights, like, and that's just how things are. Like, that's, a, that's not just like a statement, that's a perspective that you are now espousing. You are telling us something about yourself, about the way you see things. And if you see things differently, you learn a different map about that. So then, you know, it's kind of like if, you, if you're struggling with a weight problem. So you're like, well, this is just the way things are. Like, that's actually a way of thinking. It's not, it's not an objective truth. So there are lots of different lenses you could put on, and some of them are more true than others, and they're all ways of thinking. You can think in a Torah way, and the Torah way is the most catalytically powerful way to think in general about anything. So that's the idea here, is to sort of develop a way of thinking that is a Torah way. So that's why um, they originally set up the Kruvim. So in the base of Mekdash, they set up the Kruvim to be slightly um, off from each other, not facing each other directly. Um, because that's how things have to be there. People are supposed to be somewhat involved in things outside of just Torah. Uh, and still they were, they were um, intertwined or interacting in a way that reflected the intertwinement of, of a person, uh, of, of people with their, with their escorts. In other words, the idea here was that um, they still reflected the, the bond between Hashem and B'nai Israel even though they were slightly um, facing away from each other. Bipanim shel chiba. They had faces of love, of, of affection towards each other. Laros chibasu yisbarach. It's saying that they sort of show Hashem's affection towards us. That's really the main thing here, what these were. And then he writes, um, Okay, we can just skip those parentheses. not really so important for us right now. Okay, so now, that's all sort of explaining the difference between the Kruvim in the desert and the Kruvim in the base of Mekdash. Now, what's going to happen in the next part just read a few more lines, and then we'll stop with that and finish this chapter in the next episode. But, 
Uh, but still, we still seem to have this question now, because this is all a very nice explanation of sort of how things work and like why how the Kruvim reflect that. But like you have to ask this weird this side question, which is like, how come both of the Kruvim were slightly facing to the side? Why is that a question? Hello, And he said the reason it's a question is because so one of the two Kruvim represents Bnei Yisrael, and and so it makes sense. That like that one of the kruvim would be facing slightly to the side because it has to be involved in the process of parnasa of trying to get food and shelter and all those things. It makes sense that kruv would face to the side because that's it has a partial involvement in those things. But why is Hashem's kruv facing to the side a little bit? Like Hashem is dealing with us, right? Hashem is sort of like facing us. He's focusing on us, and we have to focus on him, but also on other things. So it's kind of like well, you know, the main store, the the head Walmart store, the headquarters is focused on all the stores. So like, there's no like separate existence for the Walmart store where it's kind of like doing its own thing, also facing to the side a little bit. It's like, oh, I got to go do my own stuff. Like, why is Hashem facing slightly to the side? Why do we set up the crew of Hashem facing slightly to the side the same way that we set up ours? That's a very strange thing because it doesn't seem to really fit the framework here. So that's the question we'll end off with. And then uh, in the next episode, we will finish this chapter. And that will give us a lot more insight into a sort of how to think about Hashem in a very practical way, too. One of these uh, practical outcome situations at the end of this chapter. Because it really, uh, you know, these ideas of sort of how, how Hashem interacts with us and is manifest through us are profound in terms of how we think. But you can really start to live them in a very practical way once you understand how they play out in a very sort of nuanced, specific way. So that's what we're going to do in the next part of this chapter. And so I hope to see you in that episode as we finish chapter 9.